Nomi Prince, former Wall Street executive, current investigative journalist, has just brought out a new book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. She has that rare combination of deep knowledge and brilliant writing. Her new work throws unflinching light on the power players and dark conspiracies of international finance. Nomi Prince will speak on Sunday evening, May 6th, 7.30 at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. There's wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Vilma V will host. Get tickets at independent bookstores or online at brownpapertickets.com for Nomi Prince, May 6th. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March 27th, 2018. 2018. I'm looking at the date. Oh, golly. March 27th. That's the day my mother died 70 years ago. Stop, stop, stop. Old lady talk. Old lady talk. Tomorrow is the birthday of my eldest son. That's my Easter present. Ah, yes. <laughs> As Humphrey Bogart says, yes. There they go. One in, one out. One comes, one goes. Never mind, never mind. I need things to cheer me up. Uh, I can't help it. I'm just a, just a old, old curmudgeon and the world is definitely too much. Too much with me, too much with me. I have all these notes on dear Dorothy Parker, and I'm going to put her away for a while because I, I love Dorothy. I do really love Dorothy Parker, but it gets a little bit, oh, what's the word for that? Uh, it's a downer. <laughs> you know, I I think she's wonderful, but basically she, well, she had this streak of masochism, you know. Uh, I don't know why Dorothy Parker has always been a oh, what a maternal touchstone for me. I guess it's because my mom and her friends used to sit around and recite her poems along with Edna Millay. You know how it is. Uh, let's see the sort of thing. Just one, one Dorothy Parker before I, before I move on to something more 
a positive. Dorothy says, observation, if I don't drive around the park, I'm pretty sure to make my mark. If I'm in bed each night by 10, I may get back my looks again. If I abstain from fun and such, I'll probably amount to much. But I shall stay the way I am because I do not give a damn. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. I think for a lot of us, that's what it's come down to. Uh, trying to care, though, that's our job, folks. That's our job. Teach us to care and not to care, said old old T.S. Eliot. Uh, I'll save Dorothy Parker for another day for a time when uh, <laughs> I feel like grousing. Uh, I want to go to... The woman writer who has always struck me as, I, I don't know how to say the happiest, the most positive, forward-looking, uh, upbeat, the American writer Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein. None of your masochism, none of your weeping, none of your dying of love or the lack of love. Uh, Gertrude is my father figure in literature, Samuel Beckett being my mother figure. Uh, see, Gertrude was, Gertrude was a, a, an existential artist. She says here, she says, considering how dangerous everything is, nothing is really very frightening. I will repeat, yes. Considering how dangerous everything is, nothing is really very frightening. Got that? <laughs> I think I, I think that just about I think that just about covers it. Uh, that's in my little collection here called Poetry Saves Lives. I used to believe that, and sometimes, 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 I really do. Oh, Gertrude, Gertrude, she says here that history takes time. That's the one thing I've learned in eighty-four years. She says two things are always the same, the dance and war. There you go, Gertrude. Best of all, she says, if a thing can be done, why do it? Mm, that's my most ever favorite. I used to have a little, uh, a little card that said, uh, oh, yes, let me listen to me and not to them. Sounds so selfish and narcissistic, you know. <laughs> she also said, why don't they read the way I write? Mm -hmm. And then uh, about relationships, she writes, if we must part, let us go together. She writes, do you know because I tell you so? Or do you know? Do you know? I think that Gertrude's secret, if there was one, the magic of her, uh, what would you call it, her psychological breakthroughs as an artist and a lesbian, uh, is her realization that she could be a whole person. Uh, both masculine, feminine, all things in one, you know. Uh, she wasn't 
tormented by the uh, the uh, problems that we have today. She had a whole set of her own. Oh, she and Oscar Wilde, yes. Yes, they said, they came to America and said, we have nothing to declare but our genius. She said it before she left America and Baltimore. Anyway, Gertrude. Gertrude tries to get to the bottom of things and she writes, I have had to do what I have had to do. I have had to be what I have had to be. I could never be one of two. I could never be two in one as married couples do and can. I am but one, all one, one and all one. <laughs> I, I like so many of her, uh, I guess people think of them as uh, frivolous or uh, little cartoony quotes. She says, uh, she says, once upon a time I met myself and ran. That's part of her little book, um, her little book about, uh, what is that about? Not just about running, but about uh, the world being round, how you run round and round and round, and of course everything is round. Uh, it's all about that three thing she had, you know, the trinity. Uh, everything comes in threes. Uh, oh, yes. What is poetry, she asks. And if you know what poetry is, what is prose? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Gertrude had her sad moments, too, like Dorothy uh, found a piece here about Dorothy Parker describing her her angst, her uh, inability to uh, cope with the literary giants of her time. Uh, anyway, I brought my favorite little book by Gertrude Stein called Melantha. It's rather accessible. It's kind of like American. Well, it's kind of like, you know, beginning, middle, and end a little bit. Uh, I think, you know, Gertrude... She, she didn't expect to be understood, at least not right away, you know. Her portrait, uh, the one Picasso did, all of their friends said, well, but uh, it does not look like Gertrude. What were you doing, uh, Pablo? Why, why did you? And he looked at them and he looked at the portrait. Uh, it's in the, I believe it's still in the uh, museum in New York, right? And he said, don't, don't worry, you know, doesn't look like her, don't worry, it will. And of course, now it does. That's the way things work, you know. Anyway, Gertrude was a little bit, uh, a little bit sad at the end of her life that she was not being quite as well uh, understood as she had hope to be. She wrote, disillusionment in living is the finding out nobody agrees with you, not those that are and were fighting with you. Disillusionment in living is the finding out nobody agrees with you, not those that are fighting for you. Ah, complete disillusionment is when you realize that no one can for they can't change. The amount they agree is important 
to you until the amount they do not agree with you is completely realized by you. Then you say you will write for yourself and strangers. You will be for yourself and strangers. And this, then, makes an old man or an old woman of you. <laughs> anyway, in this little book, Malanda, Gertrude announced that it was the beginning of modern American fiction. Malanta means black flower. It's about a, a young black woman searching for herself. I like to compare it to Toni Morrison's Sula, uh, written, oh, at least a hundred years later. Uh, Gertrude said, uh, she said, stories have gone, just as representative painting has gone. Perhaps representative painting has gone because we have photography. Perhaps stories have gone because social structure as we have conceived it is going. She's got that one. She's got that one. We still need the stories. To me, it's a question of the form, you know. Will it be mostly images, visual images, pictures, pictures, or will it be words? Or will it be a combination of the two? Uh, I think that's where we're going. Uh, the one is not enough. We need the script, we need the words, and we need the, the image that hits the old retina and says uh, a thousand times more than words, yes. Anyway... What Gertrude decided was that the language uh, was what had to change. Uh, she was a wordsmith. She writes, if, if you are a thinker, you will change the language. You will not use words the way others do. Aha. Then she goes on to make fun of <laughs> Ezra Pound, right, yes. He's very charming, but he's only a translation. That was, you know, her clever stuff. I, I used to, when I was very young, I used to think that her clever stuff was what mattered, her uh, uh, witty remarks. She wrote a play when she was a schoolgirl, and she said the first stage direction says, Enter courtiers making witty remarks. Once again, that's Dorothy Parker at the Algonquin. Yes, all those things. I don't know why um, we performers like to show off for each other. I guess it's it's just us. It's what we use to express ourselves. Lately, I've been reading lots of books by uh, self-professed lesbian writers trying to figure out what's the difference between a lesbian writer and a woman writer, and if there is any. And I came across one of my old favorites. It used to be said that we couldn't do a very good job of making uh, love poetry uh, from woman to woman because men had already done all that and we just had to borrow from them when that's not true. Anyway, uh, Gertrude. Gertrude starts writing at some point here. Uh, she's specific. She doesn't use, you know... She, she would say seduce, not the other word, you know. Um, but she liked to do 
was to write parables and then to be straightforward. Uh, she, she writes here about her love, yes. Mm, she's looking at Alice and she says, If you hear her snore, it is not before you love her. You love her so that to be her bow is very lovely. She is sweetly there, and her curly hair is very lovely. She is sweetly here, and I am very near, and that is very lovely. She is my tender sweet, and her little feet are stretched out. Well, well, that is a treat, and very lovely. Her little tender nose is between her little eyes which close and are very lovely. She is very lovely and mine, which is very lovely. Uh, I think I read the, uh, the Valentine to Sherwood Anderson last time. That's the uh, very Valentine and very mine and very fine is my Valentine. Uh, mm, she talks so much about names and naming. I can't say that I understand most of her theories. I just know that if you read her out loud, read her out loud, it begins to make some sense. I don't know exactly how the sound makes the sense. Beckett used to say that. He would say, the sound makes the sense. Uh, I'm opening up to Melantha. It's in a collection called Three Lives. And as Gertrude says, this is the beginning of modern fiction. <laughs> it's the middle story. The other two, uh, oh, they have their, they have their moments. But I would, I would just stick with Melantha. I think Melantha is worth a whole, a whole semester study. The uh, African American playwright. Uh, wait a minute, uh, he wasn't so much a playwright as a novelist. Uh, Richard Wright. He loved this book, Melant. They used to go and sit and read it to construction workers, and he said they loved it. Uh, anyway, when I first came across it in the women's bookstore, there was a note on the shelf saying that it was racist. And I thought, well, uh, I suppose, yes. Written in 1902. Um, Gertrude had been a medical student in Baltimore, and she had gone out to deliver babies in the uh, uh, community around Johns Hopkins. I, I believe she, well, she wanted, she wanted to study uh, psychology and medicine, but she certainly didn't want to be a doctor. She did, however, have the opportunity of uh, moving in that world, uh, seeing the people who lived in... Uh, Oh, poverty. Let's be let's be uh, forthright. Uh, anyway, this story, Melanda, is about a woman who's searching for herself, and uh, she doesn't know whether to identify with her mother or her father. And uh, it's so strange. Let's see. I just want to read you the the thing that I always thought was so funny when I first read this as a very young, young student. Uh, 
Melinda has her existential crises all the time, yes. Sometimes the thought of how all her world was made filled the complex desiring Melantha with despair. She wondered often how she could go on living when she was so blue. Melantha told Rose one day how a woman whom she knew had killed herself because she was so blue. Melantha said sometimes she thought this was the best thing for her, herself, to do. Rose Johnson did not see it the least bit that way. I don't see, Melantha, why you should talk like you would kill yourself just because you're blue. I'd never kill myself, Melantha, just because I was blue. I'd maybe kill somebody else, Melantha, because I was blue, but I'd never kill myself. If I ever killed myself, Melantha, it'd be by accident. And if I ever killed myself by accident, Melantha, I'd be awful sorry. <laughs> yes. Rose Johnson and Melantha Herbert had first met one night at church. Rose Johnson did not care much for religion. She had not enough emotion to be really roused by a revival. Melantha Herbert had not come yet to know how to use religion. She was still too complex with desire. Now, as I said, Gertrude is never specific, but it is obvious that uh, Melantha loves Rose Johnson uh, deeply, and she runs into a tough woman who apparently teaches her a lot about life, sensuality, and sex. Um, they have a very rough relationship for a while, and then Melantha meets a very gentle young man, a doctor, and uh, I think I would just say that he's too straight, too, um, too maybe middle class for Melantha. Uh, yes, indeed. It's so strange the way... Uh, Gertrude Stein anticipates all the psychological BS of today. Uh, I think, I think she knows. Well, she she certainly had she read William James, uh, but you know dysfunctional childhoods and what turns us into uh, damaged, neurotic, broken-hearted people. Uh, and why is Rose perfectly happy, uh, even with her great losses, even when her baby dies? Uh, uh -huh. Melantha just often thought it would really be the best thing for her to do, just to kill herself. She was so blue, she had been raised to be religious by her mother, Melantha had not liked her mother very well. This mother, Ms. Herbert, as her neighbors called her, had been a sweet-appearing and dignified and pleasant, pale-yellow-colored woman. Ms. Herbert had always been a little wandering and mysterious and uncertain in her ways. <laughs> I have a footnote here of my own, yes. Give mystery to life and you have reality in art. 
Melanda was the most mysterious character I read in the novels I I uh, began to read in my teens. I didn't really understand who, why, or what. I'm not even sure Gertrude did. Uh, Melantha, the story goes on, was pale yellow and mysterious and a little pleasant like her mother, but the real power in Melantha's nature came through her robust and unpleasant and very unendurable black father. Melantha's father only used to come to where Melantha and her mother lived only once in a while. It was many years now that Melantha had not heard or seen or known of anything her father did. Melantha Herbert almost always hated her black father, but she loved very well the power in herself that came through him. And so her feeling was really closer to her black, coarse father than her uh, feeling had ever been toward her pale yellow, sweet-appearing mother. The things she had in her, of her mother, never made her feel respect. Another footnote here. Why is all this so very, very familiar? Uh, of course, you know, at some point in Melantha's story, she meets the man who is able to, well, if not replace the father, but you know, um, he uh, upstages her. All of a sudden, she she knows that, uh, uh-huh, she has a little bit of a sadist in her somewhere. Anyway, story says Melantha Herbert had not loved herself in childhood. All her youth was bitter to remember. Melantha had not loved her father and her mother. They found it very troublesome to have her. Melantha's mother and her father had been regularly married. Melantha's father was a big, black, virile Negro. He only came once in a while to where Melantha and her mother lived. But always that pleasant, sweet-appearing, pale yellow woman, mysterious and uncertain and wandering in her ways, was close in sympathy and thinking to her big, black, virile husband. Now, James Herbert was a common, decent enough, colored workman, brutal and rough to his one daughter, but then <laughs> she was a most disturbing child to manage. This young Melantha did not love her father and her mother. And she had a breakneck courage and a tongue that could be very nasty. Then, too, Melantha went to school and was very quick in all the learning. She knew very well how to use this knowledge to annoy her parents who knew nothing. Melantha Herbert had always had a breakneck courage. Melantha always loved to be with horses. She loved to do wild things, ride the horses, break and tame them. Melantha, when she was a little girl, had had a good chance to live with horses. Near where Melantha and her father lived was the stable of the bishops, a rich family who always had fine horses. Uh, John, the bishop's coachman, liked Melantha very well. 
He always let her do anything she wanted with the horses. John was a decent, vigorous mulatto with a prosperous house and wife and children. Melantha Herbert was older than any of his children. She was now a well-grown girl of 12, just beginning as a woman. Now we launch into the part of this book in which we have the sexual awakening and the coming coming to uh, coming to maturity of this amazing woman, Melantha, who is obviously a little bit Gertrude Stein, a little bit you and me, a little bit Gertrude's imagination. But what it has to tell us is that victims <laughs> victims of childhood abuse very often turn out to be just as powerful as their abusers, whether that's good or not. Well, I'll, I'll look into that for next time. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next time, uh, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Radioactive Resistance is a benefit for KPFA Radio and DACA support services. Featuring multi-Grammy Award winner Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, the Bobby Cespedes Band, and the Son Jarocho All-Stars, plus special guests. Saturday, May 12, 7.30 p.m. at the UC Theater, 2036 University Avenue in Berkeley. Arturo O'Farrell says, quote, We are thrilled to support the work of KPFA in his sacred commitment to truth and dialogue. Don't take KPFA's existence for granted. KPFA needs your support now more than ever. Support KPFA by attending Radioactive Resistance featuring Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, the Bobby Cespedes Band, and the Son Jarocho All-Stars. Saturday, May 12, 7.30 p.m. at the UC Theater, Berkeley. Visit the UC Theater